the president's party on the White House lawn. But I'll say it differently. The fact is, we're here, and they're not. The conventions. The Republican convention is designed for one purpose, to soothe Donald Trump's ego. The candidates turn their attentions to South Florida in a Florida First TV interview, Democratic Vice Presidential nominee Kamala Harris on This Week in South Florida. We will make this about the taxpayer. And the race for Miami-Dade mayor takes sides. The two candidates battle for the middle. Why restaurants? And if you're gonna do restaurants, then at least you have to give us what the thought process behind it is. Give us the data. One more day, they are reopening restaurants inside. Can Miami-Dade's COVID-starved restaurant business stay the course? It's all on This Week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. And I'm Michael Putney. Joe Biden's pick for running mate, Senator Kamala Harris, checks off a lot of firsts. The first black woman nominated for VP, first Asian American woman, first Caribbean American woman on the Democratic ticket. And as the campaign focuses on Florida's Hispanic voters this weekend, another first for Senator Harris, her first TV interview with South Florida Television News, and it is with us in our South Florida-centric conversation this weekend. Senator, good morning. Great to have you with us today. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Uh, Senator Harris at the Republican convention, Nikki Haley, said America is not a racist country, and she cited her experiences growing up in South Carolina, the daughter of Indian immigrants. Your mother, of course, was an Indian immigrant. Your father is from Jamaica. You had your own life experiences growing up as a woman of color. So what do you think? Is America a racist country or not? No, it's, that's not our nature, uh, but we can never overlook the, the history of, of racism in America and, and speak the truth about it, you know, from slavery to Jim Crow laws to redlining. Um, we, we need to confront the realities of it, um, but always with the goal of, of aspiring to be everything that uh, we hold dear which is a unified country where we all um, are treated with equal respect and dignity, the, the aspiration of equal justice under law. In fact, that's why I became a lawyer. I believe so fundamentally in that ideal. Senator, I want to ask you about the South Florida vote. You, the campaign, you're launching a, a Hispanic outreach, it feels like, yes. this weekend. Yes. Uh, saw the bad bunny spot. That was interesting. Um, in, in South Florida, the Latino vote comprises so many different cultures. And among those cultures, yes. um, people from places like Cuba and Nicaragua and Venezuela, yes. are these are people who are really triggered by the word socialism. It's a very frightening firsthand thing mm -hmm. for those voters. And that is the word that the Trump campaign and the Republicans are using to paint a lot of the Democratic platforms, things like uh, public health benefits for undocumented immigrants, things like uh, you've co-sponsored the Medicare for All bill. How do you respond to that, painting those kind of things as socialism? Well, I think that, frankly, and it's evident, it's, it's a fear tactic. It's to create fear in the minds of voters by misrepresenting the facts. Uh, the fact is Joe Biden and I absolutely do believe that everyone should have access to health care and that they should not be denied access to health care because they don't have enough money in their back pocket. That's about a humanitarian approach. It's about 
an ideal I think we all hold dear, which is that access to health care should be a right and not just a privilege of those who can afford it. Um, when Joe Biden and I talk about the need to invest in our public schools, the immigrant experience is an experience of understanding and knowing that one of the best pathways to success is to have a meaningful, robust education. And that's why we care about that. It's because we know that that is the way we will become stronger as a nation, competitive as a nation. Uh, Joe Biden and I care deeply about investing in entrepreneurship and investing in the ability of all people, immigrant background and not, to be able to start small businesses, to be able to grow and economically and, and to grow in terms of their prosperity, but not to the exclusion of those who are also hungry. And so that's why we also say we should expand SNAP benefits, which are what we used to call food stamps, because they're Right now in America, one in five mothers is describing her children under the age of 12 as being hungry. So Joe Biden and I believe in America's promise. And our policies are really focused on how we will achieve that promise so that each individual can achieve their God-given capacity. And that's what this election is about, a belief in the, in the best of who we are and then fighting and working to achieve that. Yeah. Senator Harris, here in South Florida, we have roughly one million Cuban Americans, people of Cuban descent, and they still care deeply about Cuba. They oppose the government uh, of Fidel Castro and its successors. Uh, under President Obama and Vice President Biden, diplomatic relations were reestablished. There was some kind of amical relationship tried to develop. That's all gone now. With you and Joe Biden, uh, resume, try to reestablish a, a relationship, a healthy relationship with Cuba? Listen, Joe Biden and I feel very strongly that, one, the Cuban-American population um, is, is such a vital and important part of, of who we are as Americans. And we have to respect and understand their experience and history with a lot of these issues. Uh, we will rely on the Cuban American, our Cuban American brothers and sisters, to to help form what we do in terms of our approach going forward. In fact, Joe has said very often that our Cuban American leaders really are the best situated to be the ambassadors on these issues, and so that's that's going to be our approach. Senator, Florida is the no doubt biggest swingiest of the big swing states. The Democrats lost 2016. Hillary Clinton lost here by a point. Uh, largely, the turnout in the black vote really wasn't where it should be. I might say South Florida, home to a huge voting block of Caribbean and West Indian Americans who are looking to you, many of them, as a, an exciting historic pick for vice president. How do you see getting this vote, this critical vote, what could be a critical vote, out yeah. this time that did not show last time? Well, it, first of all, Joe and I feel very strongly we have to earn everyone's vote. Um, we do not deserve to have someone's vote without earning it. And so the issues that we talk about and care about include um, recognizing that families need the kind of support that they need to be able to send their kids to school if, if safely. Um, we talk about the need to invest in small businesses and that's why we're so excited about launching our Hispanic small business effort today. Um, and, and talking about the issues that people care about. And by doing that, I firmly believe 
that we're going to see great voter turnout. The stakes are so high in this election. They are so high in this election. And the voters have two choices. It's going to be a Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And on the issues that families care about, I believe all voters know that Joe Biden, in his heart and his soul, and based on the policies that we are proposing, really has the best interest of the American people and American families in mind in terms of what we're going to do going forward. Senator Harris, as you well know, South Florida has a large and influential Jewish population, and uh, you yourself are married to Doug Himoff, who is Jewish. Your stepdaughters call you Mamala. I know that you <laughs> observe sort of a blended household and faith. Well, we have a very modern family. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a lot of Jewish voters who I know here say Donald Trump is the best friend in the White House Israel has ever had. Why would it be better for those people? What do you say to them? And why should Jewish voters concerned with Israel vote for you and Joe Biden? Well, Joe and I are very clear, and we've always been throughout our careers, Joe in the Senate and as vice president, and, and throughout my career, that Israel is one of our, if not the best friend in that region, and we need to ensure that uh, that that it is safe that the security of israel is always going to be a priority for us and in terms of the interest and the needs and the demands and the priorities of jewish voters there are many and israel is one of them and 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 joe and i are without any ambiguity in terms of where we stand on that topic and it is about other issues um, that include for example for all voters including jewish voters the impact of COVID. And the fact that Donald Trump has completely failed in his job as President of the United States to protect the American people on that issue. He has proven to be quite incompetent to the point that in South Florida and throughout the state of Florida, we have seen an extraordinarily high number of seniors, of our seniors, who have died from, from this virus. So there are a number of issues that impact our Jewish community, but on the subject of Israel, there's no ambiguity. Joe and I are very clear about where we stand. Right. Senator, our time is up, and we thank you for being with us, and we hope this is just the first of many times that you are. And we hope I to see you in person. I look forward to being there. I love Florida. I love South Florida. So I hope to see you guys soon, and be well, and, and be safe and healthy, and thank you. Same. Thanks so thank much. You. And up next, the race for Miami-Dade mayor comes down to political opposites on the county commission. Steve Bovo won the primary by less than half a percent. He will join us live next. The candidates for Miami-Dade mayor raised money and racked up endorsements this week. Also hit the airwaves with paid advertising in what is being uh, becoming a very contentious race. Two sitting county commissioners give voters very different choices. Daniela Levine Cava was with us last week. Today, Esteban Steve Bovo is here. He is a former state rep and has been a county commissioner for the last nine years, representing Hialeah and Northwest Miami Day. Good morning, Commish. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning to both of you. Great to have you. Good here. morning, Steve. Thank you. Great to see you. Uh, you are campaigning from the very outset as the guy who is going to protect the taxpayer against raids on county monies uh, for non-essential services, and you clearly are referring to your opponent, Daniela Levine-Cava, what are the kinds of non-essential services 
that she is proposing that you think are uh, a waste of money? Well, my, my campaign, uh, Michael, from day one, uh, wanted to prioritize what county government was created to do. And in my opinion, county government was to provide essential services like police and fire, water and sewer. Uh, you know, when you have issues in the county, these are the, the calls that you're making. And I want to remind folks that a lot of areas in our county, unincorporated areas in our county, basically began incorporation movements, Doral, Palmetto Bay, Miami Lakes, uh, basically because they wanted to improve those kind of core services. What I see that's happened in a county government is that we stretched ourselves. We stretched ourselves to play in areas where I think uh, the state, federal government probably play a better role. You know, we pay for immigration services in our community, and, uh, and it's not that it's not an important situation, but perhaps others could be uh, addressing that, and not the county dollar, of which, again, I emphasize, we built county government to provide services that many residents in our community depend on. You know, we talked last time you were here about a month ago when you were um, before the primary night, which you won by less than half a percent. We'll talk a little bit about that. But when you were here, you talked about, you said you thought local government, county government, was moving to the left in the way tax money is used. Mm -hmm. With your answer previously, is that what you meant? What did you mean by that? Yeah, look, I think those that, that follow county government, and, and I think you can look at this across the board, on uh, cities and, and county governments and their jurisdictions and what they do and provide. You know, at the Board of County Commission, we've had conversations, real conversations that lead to uh, defund the police. We've had conversations about closing our prisons, uh, doing away with prisons. We've had conversations in our uh, Board of County Commission about sanctuary cities. Uh, you know, these are all conversations that, in my opinion, really have no place in the local government uh, sector where we again, are entrusted to provide service. Yet more and more, we put pressure to stretch that uh, county dollar. In some cases, to look at areas where, quite honestly, I think many homeowners, and it doesn't matter whether you're independent, uh, liberal, or conservative, if you're a homeowner, you need to be paying attention. You want to know where your tax dollars are going. Yeah, well, Commissioner, just for the record, let me say that last week when Daniela Levine Cabo was on, she did not advocate defunding police or not building prisons. So I don't know who your conversation is you're referring to, but uh, she is not uh, taking that position. Well, Michael, we participated in a lot of forums, and, and obviously during the course of that campaign, uh, what was being said early on then started changing because it's not popular to talk in our community about defunding police. Yeah. It's not popular in our community to talk about doing away with prisons. And obviously no one's going to own that issue now. Yeah, I understand. Uh, you know, uh, Steve, let me hold up here. You can't see it at home unless you see a screen. But here is a mailer that arrived at my house. By the way, I am NPA, so thank you for sending mailers out to people <laughs> sure. of no party affiliation. But I really find this very interesting. This particular one says, we can't afford to become another Portland, San Francisco, Chicago, Minneapolis. There's a picture of AOC, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez here. Now, there really is a message here, it seems, about Black Lives Matter, about protesters. What is it you are saying? Uh, what can't we afford? 
Well, it's very simple. Anybody that's watching, uh, you know, our television sets and seeing what's going on across the, the landscape of the United States and all major cities that are run by, uh, you know, liberal thought process, which, by the way, did not happen overnight. The things that are going on in San Francisco and Portland in Chicago and New York, these are uh, policies that I think have been embedded now for the last couple of years, and now they've come to roost. And look, uh, I, I would uh, surmise that most of us that are watching are aghast to see what is going on, the, the lawlessness, the paralyzation of many police uh, uh, forces not to intervene or just to kind of hold back the, the dam, so to speak. You know, I just, uh, you know, to me, I don't want that in Miami-Dade County. And I would tell you, I think most residents in Miami-Dade County I, do not course, want to see that. I, I, I couldn't agree more, but I need to follow up and say July 31st after the George Floyd murder, and I think that's what we could call it, uh, there were uh, thousands of people who went on the streets of Miami and some of them went to Bayside. They did loot some of the stores at Bayside, but the police, Miami police, Miami-Dade police, I thought showed great restraint. And that little outburst uh, was the one example here, but it's not as if these kinds of protests haven't happened in our community. Well, Michael, I think you're minimizing that a little bit. There was also multiple police cars that were set ablaze uh, lots of uh, vandalism and and um, and graffiti that was being done. We That's had true. about a couple of weeks of, of interruption and in, in traffic, and you know downtown became kind of like a battleground. Now, I would tell you one of the reasons that we did not see the extreme is because I think most people in Miami-Dade County don't want to see that and don't uh, don't facilitate uh, what we've been seeing uh, in other places. And I would also tell you that it's a testament, I think, to the police departments in Miami-Dade and the city of Miami who have worked extensively with our community to, to try to avoid. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have any bad apples in our police departments, because that, that would be unjust to say it. And I would agree with you. What happened in Minneapolis was murder. But it, maybe the reforms have to go in Minneapolis. We've done a lot of work in Miami-Dade County to make sure that our police department is responding to the wishes of our residents. I want to talk a little bit about the election coming up. You and uh, Daniela Levine-Cava, as we mentioned, less than half a point apart on primary night. And But between the two of you, 60% of the vote. There's one in four uh, voters still who have not decided. And largely, you say this is not a partisan race. You're right. Technically, it's a nonpartisan race. But it certainly has split along party lines. And you have little lawn signs that call you the conservative uh, candidate. So there are people looking in the people in the middle looking for whom to vote and what do you steve offer people who are much more moderate than in in either party than either you or your opponent are well i i think as i said from day one my campaign is about the taxpayer the homeowner the business owners and yes i'm going to be conservative with their money. I want to make sure that their money's being invested in the issues that they expect their money to go to. And, you know, police, fire come right up to the, you know, percolate to the very top of those priorities, water and sewer. You want to make sure clean water comes in when you open the faucet. You want your garbage picked up in a reasonable time. We want a good parks program where we actually have kids uh, like I grew up in park programs that have uh, not only the good facilities, but also programming. 
And I think that's what I mean by trying to be conservative. Look, I, I get our community. Our community is very diverse. That's what makes South Florida fantastic to live in. But what I don't want is to is to bake itself into the extremes where then we're stretching that dollar. You know, we're stretching. And, and I want to remind folks, the next couple of years, we're going to go through some very difficult situations due to COVID. You know, we've got our industries have been wrecked. Uh, not only the restaurant industry, our tourism industry, much of the money that comes uh, from, you know, from all those sectors, you know, is now uh, being hampered. And I would tell you, we need to be very mindful to make sure that we're not raising taxes and that we make sure that our county government lives within the means that residents could afford to pay. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned when we try to be government wants to be everything to everybody. That's where we fall into the trap. And as I said earlier, it doesn't matter to me whether you're a liberal, you're an independent or you're a conservative. If you own a home, look at your tax bill and you have a legitimate question. And where's your tax dollars going? And is it being spent wisely? And is it giving you the service you expect? Steve Bobo, candidate for county mayor. Always appreciate your time and so good to see you. And thanks again. Thank you, guys. Be safe. Thank, thank you, Steve. All right, the Republicans, as we all know, wrapped up their convention on Thursday. Four days of speeches headlining President Trump and warnings about America without him. Point and counterpoint coming up next. The Republicans promised an uplifting, inspiring convention in contrast to what they called the Democrats' dark vision of America. Over four days at the convention this week, speakers warned of chaos if President Trump is not reelected, and Florida figured so prominently for the highlights and lowlights and Florida impact. Two of the best political minds are with us today. Ed Pizzoli is an attorney in Fort Lauderdale, former chairman of the Broward Republican Party and influential voice in the Florida GOP. And Fernando Amandi is a pollster and political analyst. He runs Men Dixon and Amandi, which does polling research mostly for Democratic candidates and causes. Good morning. Great to Good see morning. you guys. How are you? Pleasure Good to be morning. here. Great. Um, Ed, let me begin with you. Uh, like you and like millions of other Americans, uh, I watched all four nights of the convention. And when it was over, frankly, I felt pummeled, beaten up exhausted, I mean, and not particularly uplifted by what I heard and saw. There were a few ex exceptions. Senator Tim Scott was fantastic in his speech, but what was your reaction? Well, I think it did set up a clear choice between what you saw the week before, sort of an American first versus tearing down of America, law and order versus the destruction of American communities, sound immigration versus open borders, and frankly, freedom versus socialism. I think the convention, Republican convention, was about the promise of America and the stories that were shared by Jeanette, Jeanette Nunez and Tim Scott and others really spoke to the promise of America. You That's know, something what, we didn't hear the week before. While, uh, let's, while you're talking about Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, let's go ahead and just kind of start there, Fernand. Uh, the lieutenant governor just four years ago was calling then-candidate Trump a con man. Uh, four years later, she is co-chairing Latinos for Trump uh, going into this campaign, and she stood at that auditorium and really delivered a very powerful speech against socialism. Uh, before you answer, let's take a little listen to what that sounded like. Fellow Americans, the fabric of our nation is in peril. Daily, the radical left systematically chisels away 
at the freedoms we cherish. They peddle dangerous ideologies, cower to global progressives, and normalize socialism to dismantle our Constitution. Fernand, I'm not sure if you were able to hear the uh, Kamala Harris earlier on this program calling this kind of campaigning just totally off base and mischaracterizing what socialism is and what the Democratic campaign is. What do you think? Well, needless to say, I mean, it's gaslighting and propaganda in its most disgusting and disturbing form. You know, if you were watching from Mars, Glenna, you would have thought watching that Republican convention that there was a Democratic president in office responsible for the state of the country, not Donald Trump as the Republican president. You would have also thought that there was no coronavirus pandemic that has now nearly 6 million cases in the United States, nearly 200,000 that have lost their lives. On the question of socialism, it wasn't just Lieutenant Governor Nunez, South Florida's own Maximo Alvarez literally compared Joe Biden to Fidel Castro, when if there is anyone that draws apt comparisons to the detestable Fidel Castro, it's Donald Trump, who has called Trump, mind you, for the delaying of the American election. He has disenfranchised voters and made democracy more difficult by dismantling and admitting to doing so the post office before our very eyes. He has favored and sided with America's enemies and dictators, whether they be Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un. He has also demonized the American press and called them the enemy of the people and the state. All right, the Fernand, idea Fernand, hold, my friend, Fernand hold on, hold on just a minute. I think you've enumerated so many of the faults you see with Donald Trump. I want to give Ed Pizzoli a chance to respond. Ed, what do you say to that? I was almost falling asleep on that. Uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> talk about gaslighting. My gosh. Look, let's stay positive. Uh, Jeanette Nunez came in and talked about the horrors of, of Castro's Cuba and how America opened up its both doors and heart uh, to uh, Jeanette's family. And think about where she came from and where she is today as lieutenant governor of the state of Florida. It's the same story that we heard from Tim Scott, the promise of America, the American dream, when Scott's family went from, his grandfather went from picking cotton into in one generation, now he's in Congress. This is the promise of America, and this is what we've seen all last week at the Republican convention. If you want to say that's gaslighting, then I'm all favor, I'm in favor of that. Ed, you know, there is, Ed, can I have, go, Fernand, please, go ahead. You know, Ed talks about the law and order party. Really, Ed? What about when the Hatch Act violations were taking place? Not a norm that was broken, Ed, but a law that was violated. Having the Secretary of State, who is an official in the federal government, offer his personal political support for the president, weaponizing and using American federal properties like the White House, the Washington Monument, something that had never been done before. There should have been yellow crime scene tape put around <laughs> that convention when it was over. So let's not go back and forth. Let's talk about this in good faith, Ed, and yes, end the gaslighting that the Republicans and you are doing right now. 
Can I just go back, can I bring it back to a little Florida-centric for a moment? Because I think a lot of people are looking at this convention and wondering, where is Governor Ron DeSantis? I mean, the president made him a household name back when he was running for governor. Uh, everyone talks about, there's a, a narrative of how close they are, although we've seen the governor depart from a lot of things the president has done in the past four years. They don't walk in lockstep all the time, but everyone was really expecting Governor DeSantis to have a presence at the convention. He even taped something on video that was never played. Ed, what happened? No, I think, look, I think Florida was well represented. Lieutenant Governor was there. Maximo Alvarez was there talking about his promise of America, what he experienced. I think Pam Bondi was there. She spoke about, about America being the land of opportunity and actually did what I thought was an excellent prosecutorial role on what the truth is around the Biden family. So you, if you look at those things, Florida was well represented uh, there. And, and one other point I want to make, if you think about what, like, Maximo Alvarez, this idea that somebody comes and starts a business and this is the last best hope. America is the last best hope. Why do people feel that way? And the reason is, is because this is a place where opportunity abounds. And I'm going to share a personal story. You know, you all know that my, uh, my in-laws are, are from Cuba, uh, my wife's family, and we visited there a couple years back, and frankly, uh, my mother-in-law, for the first time, went ahead and talked in front of my, my kids about what it was like to be tossed out of Cuba and be shown gunpoint out of their family business and how she went and talked about America being the land of opportunity when they had nothing in their pocket to make something of themselves. And I'm going to tell you something. That is real, and that is not gaslighting. So can I just throw out that Maximo Alvarez, who is in the gasoline business and, and very successful, has been successful through in South Florida through several presidencies and through several parties' presidencies? Yeah, if I, if I could follow up on that, I mean, let's talk about Maximo Alvarez for a second, because I am the son, like Maximo Alvarez, of someone who was forced to come to the United States fleeing that disgusting regime in Cuba in the 1960s. The great irony of all this, and the one that Ed Pizzoli will not talk about or mention, is that if Maximo Alvarez had to come to the United States in 1961 like he did, like my father did, he would not have been allowed in the United States if the president was Donald Trump because of the policies preventing people seeking asylum from coming to this wonderful country. In, in fact, it was John F. Kennedy, a Democratic president, who allowed Maximo Gomez and my father and my mother and my Cuban grandparents to make this wonderful life of the American dream here in this country. And again, just again, speaking about the utter hypocrisy of Mr. Alvarez comparing Joe Biden to Fidel Castro, uh, Mr. Alvarez has made a very successful business in the gasoline industry. I guess he doesn't have any qualms having made some of those millions using and buying Maduro's and Chavez's gas. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to, Fernand, well, you know, I, 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 I am going to interrupt you because although factually, as far as I know, you're right, I uh, don't want to have this conversation without some response from Mr. Alvarez. And we know his history. We saw him at the convention. Um, uh, Ed, I, I just, I think a very basic question. Do we need a break? Yeah, we're going to take a break here for a second. We'll be back with Ed Pizzoli for Monday in just a minute. On this week in South Florida, we are looking at the Republican and Democratic conventions with Ed Pizzoli of Fort Lauderdale. 
president of the Trip Scott Law Firm and uh, pollster and political analyst Fernand Amandi. Uh, gentlemen, I think it's pretty clear that in his acceptance speech throughout this convention, uh, President Trump made it clear he is the law and order candidate and he spoke out vehemently against people who have been protesting, including Black Lives Matter people. Here is the sort of the operative soundbite from the convention. If the Democrat Party wants to stand with anarchists, agitators, rioters, looters, and flag burners, that is up to them. But I, as your president, will not be a part of it. The Republican Party will remain the voice of the patriotic heroes who keep America safe and salute the American flag. Um, it's, only, uh, it's a strong message. In fact, it takes me back to Richard Nixon, who ran as the law and order candidate as well back in 72. Uh, is this a pitch that, is this going to be the main pitch of Donald Trump? Well, let me recharacterize a little bit of what you let in with. It wasn't that the, the president is against lawful protesters. It's the president is against those who will destroy property and cause lives to be in jeopardy. The violence in the street is what is essentially anarchy in some of our major cities. I think it's an important distinction to make. I will stand up for someone's right to lawfully protest regardless of what I think of their sign or their cause. However, when it turns to violence, then you simply have anarchy. Uh, one other point I want to make, uh, Michael, uh, with respect to uh, Armand's uh, diatribe before the break, I, I'm reminded of the words from the McCarthy hearings. Uh, have you no sense of decency, sir, to attack a fine American like uh, Max Alvarez is just unbelievable, and I say, have you no sense of decency? I think we might invite Max Alvarez for another program at another time. You know what? This um, both conventions over the past couple of weeks really presented voters with very different views on how to deal with current crises, whether it is the COVID pandemic, whether it is a racial reckoning in this country. Fernand, is there any voter who has not yet decided who to vote for? Well, I, I think the polls suggest, Glenna, that the undecideds are low. But I think the question is, if some voters are so disgusted by this horrific rhetoric coming out of the White House, coming out of the mouth of Donald Trump, you know, that they may question whether they want to participate in this most critical election in American history. But I think we have to go back to the question again that was framed at the outset now of this segment. Uh, Trump's law and order that you used in the clip earlier it's, it's law and order, sure, if you believe in Fidel Castro's type of law and order, where, again, innocent, peaceful protesters had to be uh, violently restrained by Donald Trump, a restraint that actually responded with a rebuke from President Trump's own defense secretary, Esper, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Miley, who said that that was inappropriate, unacceptable conduct, and even the former defense secretary, that said it was un-American and anti-constitutional. Yeah. Trump's law and order is very much like Castro's law and order, where you can enrich yourself. The president has enriched his own self and his family at the expense of the taxpayers, while others cannot engage in that same type of behavior. So I think it's a very hypocritical element that we see on display offered by the president himself and rebuked by members of his own government and cabinet. Ed, would you like to respond? I'm sure you would. 
Yeah, look, in, in the end, Americans can protest. They have the right to protest. And regardless of what their protest may be, I think they have a right to redress their government. I think it's important. I think it's something that we should encourage and allow. And it's not a question of us allowing it. It is every American's right to do so. However, when you see cities that are basically engulfed in lawlessness, you know, frankly, you know, in New York, when Fifth Avenue stores are boarded up and people are afraid where you have a number of police officers there, almost 25 percent of the police force in New York City, police officers taking early retirement because they are feel unsupported by the, the, the administration there. Yeah, okay. When you see lawlessness in Portland and when you see lawlessness in Minneapolis, it is time for us to segment out the difference between having a lawful protest by fine Americans, regardless of their political beliefs, on one hand, versus unlawful destruction of property and violence for violence sake and anarchy on the other. And those are two big distinctions that my friend on the other side simply fails to recognize. We are going to have to leave it there for a time. Smart, passionate men. We love having you and thank you for your Fernand, time. And Ed, Zoli, thank you. Fernand, thank Mani. you. Thanks so <laughs> thank much. All right, another step toward getting back to normal is going to start tomorrow in Miami-Dade when restaurants welcome back diners to eat inside, believe it or not, at 50% capacity. Is it enough to save struggling businesses? We are checking in with a Miami restaurant owner on the front lines. If you live in Miami-Dade County or drive down from Broward to eat at one of the restaurants in Miami, then you know it has been nearly six weeks since you've been able to come down and eat inside that restaurant. It's all because of COVID-19. Well, that is going to end tomorrow. And no doubt that is such welcome news for the struggling restaurant industry, but with a side of skeptical frustration, the closures were even necessary, especially since Broward's restaurants have remained indoor open with COVID rules. And with that, we take you to Annie Meinhold, who runs Phuc Ya, a Vietnamese Cajun restaurant on Biscayne in Miami, one of the most vocal owners advocating for responsible openings. Annie, you were with us uh, as the restaurants were closing again, even though you did everything right. How has the last month and a half been for you? Um, I mean, uh, all things considering the last month have been pretty good. You know, we're blessed to have outdoor spaces where we can accommodate a fair amount of people. Um, so the reopening on Monday is great news um, for all of us, really. You know, there is a family-owned restaurant since the 70s on Miami Beach, David's Cafe, that notified us that they were closing because of COVID. Tomorrow is their last day. Uh, I know you really have a leadership role in the local restaurant industry. Talk about, if you will, how many restaurants that have not been able to hold on, if there are, like you have. Um, I mean, there have been those that haven't been able to re that have closed permanently, but but really, for the most part, most of my colleagues have held off on openings so that they could just manage their operations, their cash flows, and their situations in the most responsible way possible. You know, we're all in this for the long haul. So um, if that means having to close temporarily for, um, you know, two to three months in order to stay open that much longer, then that's a call that every individual restaurateur has to make for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and a, um, I love your restaurant and I'm glad to see you. Wish you well. Uh, now, starting tomorrow, you're going to be able to serve your patrons inside. 
half yep. capacity. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that enough to sort of financially make it? Uh, I mean, you're still limited in the amount of uh, people you can serve. I mean, again, that really just depends on the establishment. That depends on the size of your restaurant, your seating capacity. Do you still have outdoor seating or not? Are you only restricted to indoors? You know, everyone has a different operation. Everyone has different numbers that makes their that makes their place work for them. Um, you know, we're also blessed that we have a landlord who's working with us as well. So that plays a big part in it. Um, you know, currently we're, you know, 50% increase for us for a dining room is, uh, is a positive thing. So um, what we have to do is we have to make sure that we continue to adhere to the COVID mandates, make sure all the tables are socially distanced so people continue to have that faith in us that they're going to go to a restaurant and be safe. Um, as well as for us to safeguard our employees. Um, and all in all, for us, it's great. You know, uh, you know what's really, what's really interesting now is that you had a month ago when we spoke, you said, where is the science? Why are we in the restaurant industry being closed down? And now we have hindsight because Broward's indoors never closed in, in, in yep. restaurants there. And the numbers really didn't change that we mm -hmm. could see demonstrably in a scientific way. So I, I wonder if, I mean, what do you think now that you have that hindsight? I mean, I still believe that the mandates were doled out unfairly. And I still think that the restaurant industry was targeted um, when it came to that. I don't know who was advising the mayor. I really don't care. Um, but I know that whatever he decided to do greatly affected a lot of my colleagues, the bulk of my colleagues, as well as all of our employees, more than anybody else. And so um, I still believe in what I stood, what it stood for before. So it was really about, you know, following mandates and applying mandates to everybody fairly, not just the restaurant industry. Um, I will tell you, I mean, for the record, we know that the county mayor is being advised by medical professionals. We've talked to them here at this table. So he is getting medical uh, advice and also this week he said it was the White House coronavirus task force that signed off on this mm -hmm. reopening. So then why only Miami-Dade? Why couldn't Broward follow? Why couldn't Palm Beach follow? It makes it very difficult for us as operators to receive people from other counties who have different rules going through this whole situation and for us to be able to create a memorable experience for them. I mean it's a uh, it's very difficult to control the amount of people that come into your restaurant. Everybody has a different expectation, and especially when you come from somewhere else and you're you're abiding by different rules, um, it made it particularly difficult for us in Miami-Dade, or at least for me. Yeah, you know, we, um, we appreciate your time and we wish you and all the restaurant owners <laughs> the very best of luck. And I think Michael and I can both personally endorse Fook Yeah as a really yep. good restaurant, which, <laughs> uh, which means Just Vietnamese. Boulevard. Thank you. Everybody stay safe. Wear a mask. Yeah. We're gonna I, just, I just want to throw in there before we leave because uh, Phuc Yeah means that you taught me good fortune in Vietnamese and it is not an FCC violation. <laughs> so so All thanks, right. Andy. Thanks, Annie. Thank you so much. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Woo, we thank you so much for being with us. Remember, we are online 24-7 at local10.com. And as always, stay informed, get involved, have a great Sunday. This is a Local 10 editorial with WPLG President Bert Medina. Do you want to be counted?
You're running out of time. The U.S. Constitution requires the census every 10 years, and this is the year. The count began in April, and it's wrapping up next month. We all need to be counted to make sure South Florida gets its fair share of the federal budget. The census determines how many seats we get in Congress, and those seats equal political clout. If you haven't done so yet, please do it now. It only takes 10 minutes, but it affects 10 years of your life. You can fill it out online, by phone, or by mail. Just make sure you do it, and make sure you are counted. Of course, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Let's continue it on Local10.com. This has been a Local 10 editorial. We encourage the presentation of contrasting saving business.